Who has questions? You're working on your field number three. There's a lot. So I was talking to a very bright student at office hours on Monday after class. And one of the things that he said that I think was insightful, he said, well, I hear you tell, giving us advice that you know you can use this particular category or this kind of word if you're comfortable with it, but if you're not, use the one that makes most sense to you. And he formulated that as the old familiar uh, kiss rule. You know the kiss rule. Keep it simple. Keep it simple. Traditionally stupid. But I don't want it. I don't want you. You're not stupid. So I'm changing that officially. Keep it simple, smarty pants. All right. If you confuse yourself, you are guaranteed to confuse us. And I will tell you that the goal of writing in linguistics and in lots of sciencey type writing is to sound smart, not by being fancy but to sound smart by being crystal clear. So if you are crystal clear in that first block of words, remember you, have, you come up with some words that are monomorphemic words, and you need two nouns in there, and you need two verbs in there, right? So we know, because we've talked about the fact that in most languages, you can have a word that acts like a noun sometimes and acts like a verb other times, right? English does that. We went through lots of examples. Great. We all know that that's possible. I would encourage you in your table, though, not to label words as multiple possible parts of speech. Right? Instead, if the word that you're making up and that you intend to use as a noun in your sentence examples later is a word that means something that's prototypically noun-y, like horse or puppy or chair. I tend to think of the horse and puppy examples. You guys can think of the furniture examples, right? <laughs> a house or human. Great, just call it a noun. It's a noun. At base, it's a noun. Later on, if you want to get fancy fancy and talk about all the different ways your speakers can be creative with those words, that's great. That's probably a field notebook for kind of thing. For now, crystal clarity to the best of your ability. I will tell you that when you decide on your inflectional categories, you know, you have to pick four. We're going to talk about those today. Um, you know, if you're going to inflect for number, you're going to inflect for tense, those kinds of categories, it is probably easiest to be perfectly clear if what you adopt to, to use for those categories is something like a set of simple prefixes 
or suffixes, something that you know what that thing is, right? We know, if you've done your readings on morphology, we know that languages build up words lots of different ways, not just by prefixes and suffixes, but by lots of different fancy operations. You can use fancy operations, like you may have read about a thing called reduplication. We've talked a little bit, we mentioned the existence of these things called infixes, where the affix morphine goes in the middle of a root. Those are cool. They're a little bit hard to three-line gloss, clearly, right? So, keep it simple, smarty pants. I, I would encourage you not to try to take a lot of time making things fancy, but instead, make sure that you yourself understand what each bit is and that you know how to clearly illustrate that in your assignment, okay? Um, we don't want you to invent English, so you should not make up a plural suffix that's spelled letter S and means plural, right? That's overly simple. That's English. English is actually really, really complicated. But you could have some different suffix and have it mean singular. Right? Go ahead, Richard. So if you make it a different sound, then it's not the same thing as English anymore, then that's nice. Yeah. Right. Right. So remember, it's not the letters, it's the sounds. The letters are just names for the different speech sounds, but you can create Can you cut like plural, that you add a word in front of it instead of making a sound at the end or before it? So good question. Can you maybe mark plural by adding a separate word in front of the thing it's pluralizing? Totally, you can. That's lovely. Don't do that if you don't understand what you're doing, though. Okay. Um, and in fact, you're just building memory. So, so there's lots you can do, and you should do the things that make you happy and that don't drive you crazy in terms of trying to keep track of it all, because it can be pretty fancy. Um, remember also, when you're building your sentences for the, the declarative sentence part, Remember all the things we've talked about in terms of what makes a thing a simple sentence. It shouldn't have an auxiliary verb in it if it's simple, right? It should have a subject. The subject might just be a noun, or it might be a determiner and a noun, or something like that. And then it should have a verb. And if it's intransitive, it shouldn't have anything else, right? I'm sorry, there's chatting going on. Hello, we're in class. Thank you, Chris. Um, can we make our simple sentence a command? Can you make your simple sentence a command? The answer is yes, you can. Don't do that unless you're really confident you know how. So commands are often different than simple sentences. Like in English, remember we gave the example of the command sit. It doesn't appear with an overt subject, right? But that's because we can understand what the subject is. It's a second person subject. Don't do that unless you feel like you really understand what you're doing. If you don't feel comfortable with that, think of some 
It's going to sound like an artificial sentence. We do not have conversations in simple transitive and intransitive sentences. It's an artifact of, of the building blocks of your language. We want to see that you can manipulate those. Okay, go ahead, Richard. There's a technique that linguists do to put in a free line gloss if you've got a word or an affix that is there in terms of meaning but is never pronounced. The symbol we use in line one is the symbol for empty set. And then underneath it, you put what that silent, okay. But that's kind of advanced, right? Don't do that unless you feel like you can keep track of what you're doing. It's not illegitimate to do, but keep it simple, smarty. Okay, one more, and then I need to go on. So for someone to do, you put the, the symbol? Mm-hmm. Then you put implied person? You, write, you, you do the whole block of six? So under the empty set, you would put whatever that means. So what does the... in in sit, if I had empty set symbol as the first word, what does that word mean? It's you, which is second person. So I would write second person under there. Makes sense? Okay. Um, you guys are remembering that there's two files that are due, and this is just like field notebook two. You guys did a good job of making sure that for field notebook two, you had both files in the Dropbox and they were in the proper format, and you knew what you were doing, and you verified that you didn't submit us accidentally your math homework. Right? You're going to do that again. And to try to make sure that you do that again, all of your due diligence, I sent you an email just about an hour ago via UAccess with reminders and lots of all caps. Please complete your assignment. You should read those all caps read like yelling, right? I don't intend it to be yelling. I intend it to be whining, pathetic whining at you so that you do not have to pathetically whine at us after the fact. Okay? All right. Thank you. Now, of course, this one. So I'm looking forward to your field notebook threes. We are fully aware that there's a lot of detail in field notebook threes. It's a challenging assignment. Okay. So if you're feeling that way, you should not feel bad. This is Jackie. Jackie says, <laughs> don't forget. Oh, look at those lovely three-line glosses. This is not a simple transitive or intransitive sentence. Right? This is a sentence that has an embedded quotation in it. Um, in real life, this would be what Chucky says. Try to three-line gloss that. This is one of the problems we have when we're trying to understand whether or not animal communication systems are really languages. All human languages package meaning up into these little pieces that are combined according to the principle of compositionality to make bigger or more complicated meaning. It's really hard to see how that could work in dog talk, much as we all want to believe that our dogs are talking to us. 
If it's you, we say, we can't say you am. We have to say you are. He, she, or it is. First person plural? We, right? So we are, you all are, they are. So this is a paradigm for English, and it's an irregular <laughs> verb paradigm, right? It's really common in languages of the world that the to be verb is massively irregular. Um, and I just wanted to show you this to introduce a couple of ways that languages sometimes form words that are inherently irregular, but all languages seem to do them at least some of the time. So one of them, one of these word formation processes is called suppletion. And suppletion means that when you take a word and you inflect it for some category, like plural number, you get a, another word that's just completely different than the singular word that you started with. So if you compare am and are, those guys are suppletive, right? You can't add an affix to am and have it come out are. You just have to memorize those. So am and are and is, those are all suppletive forms. If you speak any other languages, you'll probably find suppletive forms of some of the verbs too. That's what suppletion means. We also have some forms, all of these that are in green, they're the same, it's the same word, right, are. So R can, be, can go with a second person singular, or it can go with any plural person. Whenever we have exactly the same word showing up in multiple places in the paradigm, we call that null derivation. What that means is we're making the word into something else by doing nothing. Null. I would encourage you not to use suppletion and null derivation in most of your words, because this makes things awfully hard to gloss. But it does happen in your languages. Go ahead. What happens if you have, like, it's spelled differently but pronounced the ah, same? Ah, good question. What if it's spelled differently but pronounced the same? I will ask you guys to tell me what you think happens given our approach to language versus writing. The linguists would say, I don't care how it's spelled. Writing is secondary. So we try to focus on how things are pronounced. Now at some level we actually do start to care about how it's spelled and what those correspondences are. But this is one of the reasons why we're not asking you to develop a writing system for your field language. So once you have a writing system, you can introduce all sorts of craziness like that to the system. Okay. All right. So. That leaves us with these examples of kinds of number categories you could use. This, let's see, there we go. This is an example of a system that uses singular, but contrasts singular with this category, which I tend to pronounce as possible, but other people pronounce as pockle and you can call it whichever thing you want. Um, I think this is the same root as like impoverish. I don't know. It's just called pockle or possel. Do you see what 
what this means. So in English, we can do this, but we can't do it morphologically. We'll use expressions like a few or a couple. A couple doesn't necessarily mean two things, right? It can mean like two, three, depending on the context. Pawcal or possible number is a morphological category some languages use to mean, yeah, there's more than one, but there aren't so many where the, the boundaries are fuzzy. And usually those languages will have a different morphological marker to say, okay, it's more than a few. And that one is often called multiple plural. Let me close this poll, the start of class poll, and then ask you to give me a vote on this guy. I'll just ask you to vote either one or zero. Where one is, I, as a linguist, am completely confident I understand what word formation process this language uses to indicate pawpaw versus multiple plural. So, for example, is it reduplicating? Is it using affixation? Is it using suppletion? Is it using null derivation? If you think you know the right answer to that question, give me a one. If you think you have no idea, you can't see what the system is at all, give me a two. No wrong answers. Okay. My hope is that you can look at these data. I've only given you line one of the three-line gloss. But you should be able to tell from this line how the different categories are formed. I hope you can. So give me a one if you can. Give me a two if you can't. And please vote in the next. Oh, you're almost done, right? There can't be too many more than 117 people in the room. Let's see. Oh, oh no. Da! I went too soon. But you saw that big line that said, yes, I know. So all of you who said, yes, I know, what is the process? Affixation, particularly suffixation, right? Yay, you're right. How did you know? You've got different words. Excellent, excellent. Um, Kosagi, by the way, is a Muscogean language spoken in the southeastern US. Um, let me actually go backwards. Sorry. So that's pawcal or pawcal and multiple plural. I also gave you this term, distributive plural. Some languages have at least two different kinds of plural. One kind that you use if you mean there's one big group with multiple sort of similar things in it. And another that you need, you use if there's a bunch of different groups. The bunch of different groups type plural is called distributive. So you can have a language that has a singular and then has another way to mark things that are the kind of plural, like I would call students in this room, you guys are just a regular multiple plural. If we wanted to talk about students in multiple classrooms, I would have to use a distributive plural because there's multiple groups, right? If that confuses you, don't do it. But if it makes you go, oh, delicious, you should do that. It makes me go, oh, delicious. And um, Tahona Autum, the local language of this area, uses a distributive versus multiple plural distinction. 
Okay. Person, we've used the term grammatical person, we looked at it for your homework three. So I think you sort of know what grammatical person means. There's first person, which refers to me, I, uh, me. So any first person is going to include the speaker. Second person, which means you, the person I'm talking to, second. And then for English anyway, third person means anybody who's not me or you. Right? Lots of languages use first, second, and third person, and they stop there. Your language might be like that, and if you want to use person as an inflectional category, you can give yourself three persons. No language that I know of has fewer than three. But there are languages that have more than three, which is so cool. So when a language has more than three persons, they'll have first person, which is just like our first person. They'll have second person, which is just like our second person. But when you get to the third person, they'll start to care what kind of third person it is you're talking about. And their languages can differ in the specific categories. This example is a verb for to be crying um, and is a Navajo verb. Navajo, my favorite language, of course. Um, it has a category that's called fourth person. So just by looking at the glosses in, your, in the three-line glosses I've given you here, what do you think fourth person means that's different from third person? So third person I've lost, he's crying or they're crying. I didn't tell you this, but this could also mean she's crying or it's crying. These guys I've lost, that person is, is crying. So you're right, there's something specific about it, Richard. So, um, so the third person that's a great guess, but it's not right. Yes, Chris? Directionality. Directionality. So you've got some pointing going on. Maybe that's part of it. Yes, sir? Uh, there's no gender? There is no gender in this language, in the fourth person or in the third person. That's right. That's a good observation. I'll tell you, there's no reason you should be able to guess this, because it's just a cultural fact. Right, so communities differ in how they manage these extra persons. In Navajo, fourth person can be used when, for some reason, it would be rude to point to directly at the person. So you can say, oh, well, that person. Third person can be used um, to refer also to animals or inanimate things. Fourth person has to be a human being. So it's like a special kind of third person form. Go ahead. If we are doing person, should we add fourth person? If you're doing uh, person, should you add fourth person? I would say you may add fourth person if you would like. If fourth person confuses you, don't use it. Okay. Yes. You can make up your own what fourth person means. And some languages even give you an additional third-person type that you can use for all sorts of other stuff. So usually the fifth person, if it exists, is to refer to somebody who you've been talking about for so long that they almost don't need mention anymore. 
like it's just been the topic for a million years that you're going to refer back to that guy. But you can choose. Go ahead and say. What about if you have like in Spanish usted? Yeah. Oh, so a formal. You can use something like a fourth person to indicate formality. Sure, sure, sure. In Spanish, they don't. In Romance, they don't usually call that a fourth person, third person distinction, but they're similar stuff. Yeah. Excellent. Yes. What about the same thing for Spanish that they have an entire conjugation for we? An entire conjugation for we. Yeah, like we do something, not it's like you and I. We do something. Oh, there's. Is there a different for you and I versus? So, we is a first-person plural. Some languages have two different kinds of we. So, I can talk about me, us guys right here, right? That's me and you. That's called a first-person plural inclusive. I, in some languages, you have a different set of affixes or different set of words to talk about me when what I actually mean is me and my friends back in the linguistics department, but not you. <laughs> That's called an exclusive. So you can you can play with inclusive, exclusive, and that obviously only matters in plurals. Right? So what about a situation that's like you know, the whole thing we uh, we are not used? To? Yeah. So some language. This is a field notebook four thing. You know the queens. We we are not amused. Um, you a lot of languages use a plural as a polite form where they actually mean first person singular. So in field notebook four, you're going to be asked to think about politeness forms in that language. But it's not necessarily relevant here. Okay. 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 Crying out loud. All right. Excellent. Oh. I will ask you. You've got the three line glosses. What's the morphological process that we use in Dene in Navajo? to indicate our person or persons. Is it suppletion? Is it null derivation? Or is it affixation? I expect a 100% success rate at this, because we just practiced it. And we got all the same kinds of clues here, except here we've got three line, complete three line glosses. What do you think it is? Please click in in the next three. Two, one. Oh. Okay. Yay! Correct. It's affixation, right? And your clue was the hyphens line up. Nice. This will totally not work. All right. So we've got person and number. You might choose tense as a category that you inflect for, and I just made it so I have properly on my clicker. So most languages make you say when you put together a sentence whether the sentence is in present, past, or future, right? Or some combination of those. You should know that there are languages that divide up tense into more than three categories. So this is a clever thing you can do. I'll give you these examples come from Washoe, a California language, which may or may not be extinct. We don't know.
but it's an awesome language, so we hope not. We have affixes in this language. Usually, if you're going to have tense affixes, they go on the verb. That's how it is in English, right? The ed past tense affixes on verbs. These will go on a verb, and you can see what they mean. You have to say how far in the past or how far in the future. You can't just say generally it's present or past or future. Now, here's what they actually get interpreted as, what means distant past. Distance past means before I was born. Remembered past within my lifetime, but not so recent. Intermediate past, okay, it can't have happened today, but it couldn't be too long ago. Recent past means it happened sometime today. You can see how these things would be awfully useful. Right? In English, we, we can do this. We just have to add a whole bunch of words. So we don't have to indicate how far in the past it was. If you want to indicate that, we can. Uh, near future. And notice that I don't, I don't actually know whether this language has a present. It's happening right now. I don't know. Maybe it does. Um, Maybe things by the time you say them are either recent past or recent future or, or near future, right? I don't know. Okay. So what's universal about tense is that it always places the sentence on some continuum between past and present and future. What's language specific about it and you can play with it is how many categories do you have? What do they mean? How are they interpreted in your community? Go ahead, Richard. So we can make all sorts of guesses about this, but the only way to know is to ask a native speaker of the language. You cannot predict from these forms what a particular community does. It's cultural. So you have to have speakers. Go ahead, please. generations to figure out exactly and there could be individual variation and who knows maybe Washington speakers argue with each other because they think they that wasn't recent enough to be recent we can all argue with each other about how we categorize things so these these categories aren't crystal crystal clear but that's because they're human all right now I've said to you that most of the time if you have tense you're going to put your tense marker on verbs Yupik is a language of the uh, circumpolar north, or a set of languages in the circumpolar north. And they have lots of affixes. And you can, um, you can inflect verbs for tense. Um, now, one thing to notice about these tense affixes, they're in green. They're kind of, it's kind of unpredictable what their pronunciation is. It's really hard to figure out by looking at a set of words in Yupik what the affixes are. So I've just colored them in green so that you'll take my word for it. There's a bit in this word that takes eat and puts it in the past, right? And puts it in the future. Or go, puts it in the past, 
But in the future, that's very English-like, sort of, right? What's super cool about Yupik is you can put tense markings on the noun. Huh. What would that mean? Well, if you have a sled, you can say, my sled, no tense marker on it, that acts like a noun. If you put a past tense marker on it, it means my sled that I used to have that I don't have anymore. Isn't that nice? Or the one I'm going to get. Here's an even better set. So we've got person, number, and tense. There's a couple of categories listed as options for you guys that we just don't find in English, um, but that are common in other languages. One of them is directionality. So you can make your language have a directional system in the morphology. Directional, directionality is something that we usually see show up on verbs. And in particular, it's going to show up on any verbs that refer to motion. Okay, because motion is stuff that can happen in a direction. The directional affix will indicate which way you're going, location or direction. Um, if you think about English word pairs like come and go, those are kind of they're really a verb that's inflected for directionality. Come means motion towards and go means motion away. We have this a little bit in suppletive forms in English, but not regularly. I'm not going to pull this because we don't have time, but I want you to see it. Look at all these guys. Homo, Kashaya, Poma, another California language. Languages that have directional marking are often languages that are spoken in, in like coastal communities or communities that are along a river or on a mountain range. So motion is almost always oriented towards some geographical Formation. So you find a lot of this in California languages. So these are all forms of the verb to run. And you add sentences to say, now you cannot just say, I ran in this language. You have to say one of these, right? So you can argue with each other about whether you get it right or not, but this is an obligatory part of the inflectional system. Yeah. Oh, who knows what they do with a treadmill? That would be interesting. All right. Evidentiality. Another option that you have that's not generally attested in English, so I want to make sure we get these examples in. Typically shows up again on verbs. There's a lot of inflection that happens on verbs. In languages that have an evidential system in the morphology, every time you say a sentence, you have to say how do you know the information that you're conveying in the sentence. So uh, in English, we do this by extra words. We can say, well, I heard that, blah, blah, blah. Or I know that, blah, blah, blah. Or I conclude that, blah, blah, blah. In these languages, you have to, every time you say a sentence, say how you know the information. The categories of possible ways you could have come up with it are language specific. So this is a language, and it's again Kishaya Pomo, California language. Um, hopefully I've got it. Yeah, there we go. Where you have a set of suffixes that show up on your verb, and these are the choices you can pick from. 
So you can say, you're going to say it rained. That's a fact. Okay, so what that means is your evidential marker says, I'm absolutely certain of this because there's no other way, right? If you saw it, specifically visual information, you can use yeah. If somebody told you it, you can use it though. If you heard it, pitter-patter of the rain, meh. If you conclude it based on post-hope evidence, <laughs> right, you give that guy. So imagine you walked into your village and everything was wet all over and you go, it rained. Oh. And somebody else says, oh, no, no, I've been running the sprinkler. Oh. <laughs> so, so, yes, ma'am? What if something isn't certain? What if something isn't certain? So you kind of have to pick one, right? And then you can use extra words to explain what you need to explain. Um, evidentiality systems are really interesting when you get to um, problems with intercultural communication. So if you pick the wrong evidential marker, you can, you can really confuse the bejesus right out of people. Um, and we have stories, a lot of these evidential languages are in the Andes. Early missionaries, English-speaking and Spanish-speaking missionaries to the area would acquire the native language. They wouldn't necessarily get perfect control of the evidential system. And the default evidential marker in a lot of these languages is the one that means, I know it because I was there. So if you think about the kinds of things missionaries generally talk to people about, <laughs> and they're marking their sentences with, I know this because I was there, you get indigenous people who think, these guys are nuts, or they're millions of years old, or they're lying to us, right? Until the, so, so, evidential systems are all sorts of fun. Of course, you can lie. In any language, you can lie. But you have to take a position in these languages on how you know. Go ahead, Chris. So, if, as far as I believe, or I think, or yeah. uh, I think it to be true, or I, I mm -hmm. believe it to be true, how would it... Would... <laughs> yeah, so you probably also would have verbs of thinking in the language that you could use to say believe versus think versus or I think um, hypothesize. Right? There's going to be ways to do it. But you're going to have to do it with extra machinery. Right? Just like in English, if I want to tell you there's two books, I'm out of luck with respect to the morphology. I have to do it with the syntax. Okay. Grammatical gender. I think you guys know about anyone who speaks Spanish, French, German, Portuguese. You know what grammatical gender is. And you know that at base, it really isn't about who's girl and who's boy. Right? Now, Systems like the Spanish one, we mentioned this, do use grammatical gender, masculine and feminine, to correspond to biological gender for, for human nouns and certain kinds of animate things, right? But for inanimates, you just randomly assign them to either masculine or feminine. So Spanish speakers give a yelp if I've got any of these wrong. We talked about la mesa, the table, that's feminine. El libro, masculine, the book. Laura, feminine, what does that mean? The time. 
right? It's time to grow old. We have, we have nouns sorted into categories. That's what a gender system really is. And we talked about how in these languages, sometimes you know what the gender is by inflection on the determiner. Sometimes. So I know you're familiar with that kind of thing. Um, there we go. Let's look even within Roman or even within Indo-European though at how we assign things to genders. In Spanish, girl, la niña, moon, la luna, feminine, sun, el sol, right, masculine. In German, the thing that means the girl is grammatically neuter. The thing that means the sun is grammatically feminine, and the thing that means the, the moon is grammatically masculine. Somebody. So even these are culturally very similar, comparatively similar societies, right? It's arbitrary. It's arbitrary for most nouns in the language. So do, if you're going to use grammatical gender in your field notebook three, do not talk about it as only being related to things that are boys and things that are girls. That's not what grammatical gender is. That's what biological gender is. Very different. I told you that there are systems that use gender but don't use categories called masculine or feminine. Blackfoot is a Bonefield language spoken in Minnesota and then the part of Canada that touches, I'm sorry, Montana, the part of Canada that touches that. We have now sorted into different categories. The categories are marked by suffixes and um, the distinction is called animate versus inanimate. And for a lot of things that makes sense, right? But even in these systems, you get arbitrariness. So in Blackfoot, the noun that means raspberry counts as an animate thing, and the noun that means strawberry counts as an inanimate thing. It's cultural. So if you're using gender, you should uh, you should make it cultural, right? Um, one more little bit. I think I told you last time that there are languages that have gender-like systems, except they have way more than two or three categories. Those are called classification. So let me show you. This is Bantu. Every noun will fall into one of these classes. By the way, the numbering isn't consecutive 1 through 18. This is a specific Bantu language. And all the languages share some subset of these. I will post this slide for you for inspiration if you want to make a classification. If it's fun, do it. If it's not, don't. Good luck with your local three. And thanks, you guys. I will see you again on Monday. And I totally want to know that question. Okay.